Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. You know, it is uh, frequently stated that uh, revolutions do not happen in England. Uh, there seems to be an idea floating around that that there's a fundamental difference in the character between the English people on the one hand, English, Welsh as well, I suppose, and the fiery Spaniards and the revolutionary French. They have revolutions, of course, but we do not. No, we are far too peaceable and uh, reasonable people, moderate people. Uh, constitutionally unsuited to revolution. On the contrary, our history, we are told, is one of uh, compromise, of slow, gradual, peaceful change in which today is better than yesterday and tomorrow we think will be better than today. Yes, it is a very comforting notion which uh, encourages uh, a peaceful night's sleep a, com- a comfortable notion, yes, but bears no, no relation whatsoever to the truth. You see, uh, the fact of the matter is that if today uh, we people in, in, in Britain enjoy at least a certain level of democracy <clears throat> and rights such as they are, and of course uh, there's no guarantee that those rights are going to be maintained as we see at the present time, but nevertheless, such democracy that we possess, such rights that we possess, such, a, such as an elected parliament, free speech, freedom of conscience, of religion, and so on, they were all purchased at a, at a heavy price. Oh yes, my friends, they're product of a revolution. Neither more nor less. One of the great revolutions of, of history. An, astor- an, an astonishing annal of, 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 of courage and bravery and heroism on the part of uh, the masses, the poor people of, of England, the working class in the first instance, which changed everything. Oh yes, this was really the first great, what we would say as Marxists, the first great bourgeois revolution, although that's not strictly accurate, you know. There was actually another bourgeois revolution that preceded the English Revolution, actually, a very interesting one, which, of which uh, perhaps we'll speak on some future occasion. But the Dutch Revolution uh, was a- another great bourgeois revolution which changed the course of human history. I think perhaps the reason why the, the Dutch Revolution doesn't get much attention is because it assumed the form of a war of national liberation of Protestant Holland against Catholic Spain, and therefore it's, its character is not quite clear. And yet, even in that revolution, the same processes are to be observed. Now, I'd like to begin as a Marxist with, um, if I may, with a few general observations about method and the Marxist attitude towards history. Now, there is a, a 
school of thought which is going around the universities and which has uh, uh, affected the the mental capacities of many uh, unfortunate students who who have the misfortune to study history and philosophy in our universities at the present time. It's called postmodernism. You may have heard of it. This is uh, supposed to be a philosophy of sorts. Personally, I don't consider it to be a philosophy at all. But nevertheless, part of this uh, marvelous construction is that they say that there's no such thing as progress and that there's no possible way that one can understand history other than just a series of accidents. This uh, allegedly profound theory, uh, by the way, it was anticipated by, uh, of all people, uh, Henry Ford. Yes, Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, who said uh, some years ago, he, he defined history quite scientifically. He had two definitions, actually. He said, history is bunk. <laughs> history is rubbish. You can't understand anything anything about it. And he added a definition which I like particularly, very smart definition. <clears throat> he said, history, he said, it's one, just one damn thing after another, which I suppose is true in a sense. But basically the same conception is there that you can't understand history. It's just a series of accidents uh, caused by different individuals, men and women that affect the cause of events for no apparent reason. Now, this is strange if you think about it. Isn't it strange? Very strange indeed. You see, we have been uh, taught to, to, to believe by science that everything in the universe, everything, my friends, from, from, the, from the, the biggest galaxies to the tiniest minuscule subatomic particles, everything is governed by laws and can be explained, and can be studied, and can be understood. Everything under the sun, with, with the exception, it seems, of ourselves. Uh, our history cannot be understood. We are far too complex to be understood in a rational sense. Now, this simply doesn't uh, square, doesn't make any sense. And in point of fact, Marxism does uh, explain history. We, we certainly can explain history. In, 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 in a scientific sense, in the sense of the development of the productive forces, that, by the way, is progress. You know, you say what you like. I mean, apparently for these people, there's no progress between human beings and say, I don't know what, um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, microbes, I suppose. I suppose you could make out a case for that. Yes. You could say that microbes, in a sense, are more successful than human beings. I mean, look at this virus that has got us all in a state of panic and lockdown to an extraordinary degree. Oh, yes, the microbes have done rather well. They were on this planet long before us, and they'll be on this planet, I assume, long after we've ceased to exist. Yes, but to argue seriously that one cannot speak of any progress whatsoever from the humble single-celled creature, or the microbe, to Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, and Karl Marx. Well, frankly, my friends, I would tend to differ. Oh, no, you, there is progress, and progress can be measured only in one sense, by the, the capacity to develop the means of production. Oh, yes, because upon, upon that question, everything else 
is determined. Well, the food we eat, the house, house we live in, the, the clothes we wear, it's all ultimately determined by the development of the productive forces. Now, you can like it or you can like it not, but it's a fact, nevertheless, which can't be uh, gainsaid. And actually, history, like everything else in nature, in history, you can determine definite processes. Oh, yes. Now, I happen to be particularly interested in revolutions because there are revolutions in nature, there are revolutions in inanimate nature, there are revolutions in human evolution, animal evolution, and so on. It's clear that the line of evolution is broken by sudden, sharp, violent changes. And one can see that in our own history also, that long periods of apparent uh, calm, apparent stasis, I think the scientists would say today, is interrupted by periodic violent changes, wars and revolutions. And incidentally, we tend to date specific historical periods by precisely these sudden violent events, these wars and revolutions precisely. We speak about before the, the First World War, before the Second World War, the period in between the wars, the Russian Revolution and so on, the French Revolution, of course. And of course, the great English Revolution was precisely one of those sudden violent uh, interruptions of, uh, of peaceful uh, historical change, or evolution, if you, if you like, in the 17th century. Now, you see, I, I'm, I, it's, it's a little bit strange, I, I think, and a little bit unjust, in fact, that many people, including many Marxists, who are interested in revolutions and take an interest in the subject, uh, they study the Russian Revolution, it goes without saying, but probably the greatest event in human history, the greatest single event. Or the French Revolution, yes, they take a lot of interest in that. There's a vast literature about the French Revolution, and some of it uh, very interesting, which explains in details the mechanics of the revolution. Here's an interesting point, my friends. If you care to study carefully, let us say, the three revolutions which I've just mentioned, the English Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Russian Revolution, what is extraordinary, it's absolutely amazing, that uh, although they are separated by long periods, by uh, decades or even centuries, and although they represent different class contents, after all, the Russian Revolution of 1917 was a socialist working class revolution, yes, but... Uh, the bourgeois revolution, the French revolution and the English revolution were bourgeois revolutions. Although we must qualify that as we will see in the course of the discussions which we, which we intend to have. Yes, but despite the difference, the colossal difference in time and even the difference in class content, what is extraordinary to me is that you can see this exactly the same patterns emerging in all three cases. The same. Even the characters are, are somewhat um, similar. I'm thinking particularly of the uh, the monarchs of Charles, in the case of the English Revolution, of um, Louis the Sixteenth in France, and of course uh, Tsar Nicholas II in Russia, and their foreign wives. Very interesting. Almost identical. Why is this? It seems to be extraordinary. The same kind of characters, the same kind of psychology, the same kind of actions even, as if, it, the, the, as if it had been rehearsed like a play. Of course, it was not rehearsed. None of these events were rehearsed or planned 
in advance. They happen spontaneously for natural causes, if, if you like. And the reason is very simple. You see, as a simple rule of thumb, if you like, similar conditions tend to produce similar results. Oh, yes. And even similar types of characters. I mean, that's a, a fascinating subject in and of itself, which we won't deal with at the present. Or perhaps we will deal with it a bit uh, later when we deal with the, the different characters involved, different personalities involved in the English Revolution. Because, by the way, Marxism never uh, said, Marx and Engels never maintained, that the individual does not play a role in history. No, on the contrary, Marx said the opposite. He said, and I qu I'm quoting from memory, men and women make their own history. Oh yes, we make our own history. What would history be without the conscious uh, agents, the human agents involved? It would be nothing. It would be a, an empty abstraction. Yes, that's one thing, but it's, what's not true, what's certainly not true, we do not make history as free, entirely free agents. We are limited by the times in which we live, by the conditions, by the economic level, by the cultural level, by all, all, all kinds of things beyond our control. And therefore, it's not true, the old idea that uh, all of history is determined by great men and women is simply not. It's a myth. It's a myth. It's not true. There are objective processes which condition the outcome of different uh, class struggles, if you like. Having said that, within these general processes, the uh, activities of certain individuals, for good or for ill, do play a fundamental role, a very important role in, uh, in events, as we, shall, as we shall see. Now, the English Revolution was... Uh, was a revolution in every sense of the word, and it was quite a bloody affair. It wasn't that also tends to be played on insofar as they talk about the, the revolution at all. And by the way, incidentally, as an aside, I have on my bookshelf behind me here a remarkable book, series of books, written by one of the main protagonists of the English Revolution, by uh, Edward Hyde, the uh, Earl of Clarendon. Was actually was the, was King Charles's second in command. He was uh, a very important leader in the royalist camp. Although he was actually a very intelligent and critical thinker, who wrote a remarkable uh, history of the English uh, Revolution. But the title that Clarendon uses is quite uh, significant, I think. So is the mentality, the attitude of the bourgeois towards their own revolution. He, he entitled it. The history of the Great Rebellion. You see, not revolution at all. The history of the Great Rebellion. The word revolution is, is, is exclusively used by British historians in relation to an entirely different event. The Glorious Revolution of 1688. Well, there was nothing, it wasn't a revolution, it was a coup d'etat. And far from being glorious, it was rather a squalid affair by a, a Dutch, an unprincipled Dutch adventurer, William of Orange, who seized control uh, after the, at the end of the, the Stuart dynasty by kicking out uh, James II. That's another story. But no, no, that was neither a revolution nor was it glorious. No, no, no. But that's how, they rewrite, that's how the bourgeoisie have rewritten history. 
the real glorious revolution, now it was a glorious, inspiring affair, as I hope to bring out in the next few weeks, was this marvelous revolution that began in when? 16, well, it actually began before then, as we'll see. But the actual civil war began in 1642 and continued in the 16, until 1649, seven years. Seven years of hard, bloody struggle, murderous struggle, class struggle in this green and pleasant uh, land with very high casualties, by the way. It's not generally realized. People think it was like just a walk in the, walk in the park. It was no such thing. No such thing. The actual uh, numbers of casualties will never be known. They didn't uh, keep uh, very exact statistics in those days, but insofar as modern uh, studies have been able to uh, elucidate the, the case, you're talking about just in relation to England and Wales, just in, just in relation to England, if you like. What, I think the figure was 34,000 on the parliamentary side killed. That's killed, not wounded. Many also were wounded also, but actual deaths. 34,000 on the parliamentary side and about 50,000 on the royalist side, which makes about 80, 84,000 deaths, direct casualties, people killed in the fighting. Bear in mind the population of Britain was much smaller in those days uh, to what it is now. I think the population, if my memory serves me correctly, was at the beginning of the 17th century, would have been about, about 4 million. I think it increased subsequently to about 5.5 million by the end of the century. But this is this is far smaller than the present uh, population. Bear in mind the population of London itself, what is it? London proper is 8 million. Therefore, you could fit uh, uh, twice the population uh, at the time of the Civil War into London. Not Greater London, but uh, the actual uh, smaller London itself. Yes. If you add to that a further 100,000 approximately who died of disease and other, other secondary causes brought about by the revolution, by the Civil War, you're talking about a figure which is approaching 200,000. That's a huge figure, given the, the actual population at that time. There are other figures, of course, which are less uh, reliable. Um, the, the, there were no, uh, no accurate figures were kept in Scotland of, uh, of casualties, but there must have been considerable. And in Ireland, it's actually estimated where there was a real bloodbath, it is estimated that perhaps maybe 40% of the population perished. Colossal deaths, about half a million, or 600,000, I think, perished in Scotland and Ireland, approximately. These are all approximate figures. But the figures which are sufficiently big, if you bear in mind the smaller population, to give you an idea of the ferocity of the fighting, and how did this end up, this uh, allegedly peaceful uh, little affair to which no, no attention is paid? Yes, it ended up in, in, in 1649 with the execution of King Charles I, <clears throat> an event without parallel. The trial and execution of uh, Charles Stuart, Charles I, was uh, an extraordinary event without any precedent. In any country, never mind about uh, Britain, in any country. Oh yes, I'm well aware, you're about to correct me, that I'm well aware that uh, kings were killed in the past. In this country, not a few of them ended up uh, murdered in different uh, 
unspeakable ways during the Wars of the Roses and, and so on. That's perfectly true. Yes, but it was, this was different. They were killed by other kings, by, by, by the nobility itself. It was the nobility turning on itself. Different dynasties struggling for power. Who's going to be king? This is different. For the first time in history, a ruling monarch was put on trial and accused of treason by the people in the name of the people of this country. Oh, yes. Charles I was, was, was tried, was found guilty, and was executed by severing his uh, head from his royal neck. That was how this pretended, the British people solved the problems in, in, in those days. So, you know, these, these are, are, are astonishing events which we need to, to, to study carefully. Now, at bottom, of course, every, every great historical struggle is a class struggle. Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto, they, the, the opening words of the, is that the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle, and this is no exception. Now, I'm aware of the fact, I'll deal with the question briefly of religion, uh, just touch upon it in this session, we'll discuss that in more depth later on. But the religious question undoubtedly confuses people. They, they, it, it introduces an element which, which makes people feel a bit uh, uneasy, a bit uncomfortable, a bit confused. Because at first sight, what you have here is a myriad of different churches and, and religious tendencies and sects struggling uh, for power. And it could be presented in this, like it's a struggle for religion. And of course, that, that played a big role. No two is about it. But you see, there is no way that you can understand this myriad of, of, of sects, of religious sects, in the, in, the, in the English Revolution, unless you understand that each one of these sects, one way or another, represents either a specific social class or a subgroup of, of, of a class. No, no two ways about it. That goes particularly for the, the, the left-wing sects. You can refer to them as such which undoubtedly reflected the, the revolutionary aspirations of the poorest sections of society. But there were others, of course. I mean, uh, if one use, uses the modern terminology of left and right, on the extreme right wing, you'd have the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, who still existed. It's true that they were, uh, since the Reformation of Henry VIII, they were uh, persecuted and uh, uh, it wasn't legal, for example, to celebrate the Mass. Yes, but the Mass was celebrated. And to a large extent was tolerated. There were a large number of people still practicing the Roman Catholic religion, mainly under the protection of wealthy uh, landowners and wealthy uh, aristocrats who allowed them to, to hold these ceremonies on their, on their land, on their estates, and so on and so forth. But you see, this is the period. This, this is important you understand this. We are talking about the period of the bourgeois revolution in Europe and the bourgeois revolution, the revolution against feudalism, for the, of the rising bourgeoisie against the feudal aristocracy and so on, to put an end to the medieval system of servitude which existed, and the, was, was, was also a religious, it had to be, it had to be of a religious character. What you must remember is that throughout the Middle Ages, the entire culture, the entire ideology of uh, all European countries was, the, was dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. Absolutely. 
which exercised a spiritual dictatorship, the same way as the uh, the monarchs and uh, landowners exercised a, a physical dictatorship uh, and oppression of the people. And of course, over a period of years, this this uh, Catholic Church amassed colossal wealth at the expense of the poor people, and so on, and was notoriously corrupt. The monasteries in particular were centers of corruption. You had all kinds of things. I won't go into detail. I think you're aware of the abuse of the, uh, what, what were they known as? The, uh, uh, the, the way you, you could buy your way, the indulgences, that's right. The papal indulgences, which enabled you to purchase your way. It's like a bit like a game of Monopoly, the get out of jail free card. Only you, it wasn't free. You had to pay quite a lot of money. One way or another, the church to get out of purgatory, to shorten the length of time you'd be in purgatory, and so on and so forth. So all this eventually led to a, a struggle. The bourgeoisie was trying to assert its its its, its uh, or gain political power. It had economic power. It had uh, colossal wealth, accumulated wealth. It didn't have the political power. You see that in Britain at the time, in England at the time, rather. That the House of that there was the House of Commons and the House of Lords that existed. It wasn't really democracy. It wasn't uh, the elections were not real elections in our sense of the word. But nevertheless, the upper house, which represented the nobility, had uh, less money actually. Uh, although, they, although of course the the, uh, the nobles, some of them were ex extremely rich, obscenely rich, as happens today. Nevertheless, most of the wealth was in the hands of the lower house. The bourgeoisie, the merchants and so on, the merchants, the moneylenders, the bankers and so on, they who dominated the lower house and they had, a, they had most of the wealth of the countries was concentrated in their hands, particularly wealth derived from London and the uh, southeast, the towns. This is a period of the rise of the towns. That was what undermined feudalism. It was the rise of the towns, the rise of the merchants. In England, this process began even in the reached a, a key development in the 14th century with uh, the development of cap capitalism in agriculture actually, capitalist agriculture, the, the, the sheep, the wool trade. The wool trade was actually the main industry throughout this period. It was, it was a very profitable industry. They exported a lot of wool to Europe, made huge fortunes out of it, built lavish houses in the countryside and so on. You had a, a rising class of gentry, as they were called. Not the old nobility. The old nobility were there. They were the ruling class. They had the political power in their hand. But you had this rising class of wealthy farmers. Cromwell was one of them. Wealthy farmers. Some of them had developed their wealth a long time earlier. But most of them had been promoted during the uh, Tudor and Stuart period as a result of the Reformation. And here we come a little bit closer to the question of religion. On the continent, the Reformation was a very bloody affair, which culminated in the Thirty Years' War in Germany. That's an important fact. The whole, uh, whole of Germany was, was converted into a gigantic battlefield between the armies of the, the Pope and his supporters, the Spanish uh, gangsters in particular, and, and on the other hand, the rising uh, uh, Protestant bourgeoisie and nobility of Germany and Sweden and the Low Countries, Gustavus Adolphus was a, a hero of the Protestants at that time, the Swedish 
king. Germany was trans transformed into a bloody battlefield. I mean, this was hair-raising stuff. Hair-raising. I mean, the, the atrocities committed in, in, in Germany at that time were it's, it's difficult even to consider. Armies were, were rampaging through the country, destroying, laying siege to cities. Once a city would fall, they would quite uh, ruthlessly murder, slaughter in cold blood every man, woman, and child they could get their hands on. Rape, pillage, burning down the cities. Terrible slaughter, torture, all kinds of monstrosities. And this was known, by the way, all this was known, because this also is the age of the printing press. And therefore, in, in, in England at that time, where people were increasingly literate, pamphlets were circulated, printed pamphlets, printed in Germany, printed in, the, in Holland and the Low Countries, and so on, describing these atrocities. And therefore, the fear of Catholicism, it was a big question, as far as the masses were concerned. They were terrified of, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, somehow or other the papists would come back and uh, there'd be a slaughter. Now, the English Reformation was a bit different, was quite a lot different to the Reformation on the continent. Here there was no great uh, slaughters like that and no great uh, wars or civil wars under the Tudors. The Reformation was carried out by Henry VIII, not because he was a committed Lutheran or a committed uh, religious Protestant, but only because he wanted to uh, preserve his, dynast dynast his dynasty then as a recent... Uh, Possessor of the English throne, only the second memory of uh, the second member of, of, of a new dynasty, the, the Tudor dynasty, that followed the Wars of the Roses. He needed to have a male heir. I won't bore, bore you with the story, you've heard it a thousand times. Since he could not get a male heir, he wanted a divorce from his Spanish Catholic wife. Catherine of Aragon. He wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, who, by the way, was a Protestant, as one element. Yes, he couldn't get this divorce. The Pope wouldn't agree to it for, for political reasons, all political reasons. Religion didn't play much of a role in it, actually. And finally, it forced Henry to break with Rome and declare himself the head of the Anglican Church. That's why it's called the Anglican Church. Yes, but uh, but if you if you ask me what, what Henry's religious beliefs were, well, I couldn't really answer that question. He certainly wasn't, I don't think he had any fixed religious beliefs. He believed in Henry VIII, and that's about all he believed in, I think. And therefore, as far as the, the church ceremonial was concerned, the Anglican church was theoretically was Protestant, because it broke with Rome. But the only fundamental difference was that Henry was the head of the church instead of the Pope. That is all. And therefore, there was no real profound uh, religious re uh, reformation as there had been in, in, in Europe. It was half a, re a reformation, if you like. And therefore, let's just sum up. I think we'll have to come close to the end of this particular chapter. Let's just sum up the situation that existed. So we say at the beginning of the 17th century, uh, the, the, in England had broken with Rome. They had the, you had the Catholics, they still existed, they were still around in a subversive way furthermore, causing a lot of problems. But you had then the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church then, the ceremonial of the Church, it didn't really change very much. They still had the Mass, they still had the priests, they still had all the bishops, they had all the ceremonials, they had the 
stained glass windows, they had wealthy churches and monasteries and so on, even at this time. And therefore, the, the Anglican Church, that's the High Anglican Church, be, be, be clear on this, there's the High Anglican Church, but then also there was the, a rapid development of more radical Protestant tendencies. The lower church Anglicans, and then to the left of them, to, to continue the left-right uh, thing, you had other developments. The bourgeoisie in general, the merchants and so the wealthy merchants, they were Presbyterians, not Anglicans. Presbyterianism, if you like, is the party of the moderate bourgeoisie in Parliament. That's what the, it's about. And then to the left of the Presbyterians, you had the independents. Cromwell was an independent who didn't accept any of these uh, notions. And to the left of the independents, you had a whole myriad of sects, all kinds of uh, peculiar sects, uh, you might think, you know, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Anabaptists, who didn't believe, who believed that, you, that uh, only an adult should be baptized. The fifth monarchy men, they were quite radical. The ranters, they were perhaps the most radical of all. And others then, the levelers, the diggers, about which we will speak on a future uh, occasion. But the religious question, of course, became, became a, a central question. It was a burning issue for men and women at that time who really believe, that's the difference, you know. You cannot approach the 17th century with the same mentality of, of today. Nowadays, most people don't pay much attention, at least in Britain, don't pay much attention to religion. Maybe they formally put on their birth certificate that they're Anglican, C of E, Church of England. Don't believe a word of it. Never been to church. Never, never will go to church. That may even be the case for many Roman Catholics and so on. They formally, the, the formal Christians, but in reality, nobody uh, takes it very seriously. That was not the case in the period we, that we're discussing. On the contrary, religion was a burning issue. You better believe it. Men and women believed this. Almost all men and women believed this. They believed in God. They believed in Jesus Christ. They believed in the, their immortal soul. Ah, they believed in heaven. Oh, yes. And they also believed in hell. They had a particularly strong attachment to hell. And therefore, anyone that uh, took the, the wrong religion, he would end up, or she would end up, in the burning flames and eternal torment not a very inviting prospect. And therefore, people took this very, very seriously. But at bottom, I will repeat, and I'll finish on that, but at bottom, we can develop the, the, this, this theme next time. At bottom, this is really a class question. And there are all these religious uh, uh, schools of thought and uh, organizations and movements and, and sects ultimately did reflect class interests. They were the, the 17th century equivalent of political parties. And once you understand that idea, then my friends, you begin to understand the dynamics of the English Revolution, which I'll just finish with, with, with one idea. People think that the French Revolution is very inspiring, so it is. Well, I've got news for you, my friends. The English Revolution is every bit as inspiring from a revolutionary point of view as the French Revolution. You better believe it. And this is a theme which I hope to develop and make this abundantly clear in the next few lectures, which I, which I intend to give. And with that thought, I think we'll close this initial chapter.
Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.